1: Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash A-H-T-T. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. cell podcast episode 136 dexter henry brian fonseca still playing it safe still quarantining at home and we have a guest joining us this week uh first i've known for a while jane McManus. she is a sports columnist for the new york daily news and she's also the director of marist center for sports and communication jane long time no see long time no hear how are you
0: I'm good. I'm good. It wasn't that long ago, you know, that you and I were basically working the same beat over at the Jets. I'd see you all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing you all the time. I actually think the last time we saw each other was the Super Bowl um, that was here in New York when the Broncos, I don't remember the number, but the Broncos uh, played the Seahawks. I think that was one of the last times I saw you um, there, so it's been that long, but um, really good to see you, uh, um, seeing everything that you're doing. Brian, how are you doing, man?
2: Doing all right. Good. I obviously have a special guest, too, over my left shoulder or right shoulder. No, this is my <laughs> left shoulder, but over here is my right because of how the thing is mirrored anyway. But, yeah, you know, Nico Bellic. I'm I'm switching it up every every episode. Every you
1: episode, of I mean. a new background. You like it. Jane, don't feel bad that you did not uh, join in the background. Uh, well, fun. I,
0: I have a special guest in my background as well. I've decided, <laughs> I've decided to go the anti-aspirational background for my Zooms. And just have like a crazy stuffed animal. That was my you know <laughs> my, my
1: football. I like it. I I, yeah. I I I totally I totally rock with it. Jane, whenever we have other journalists on here, we like to start off by saying, Hey, you know, how did you get into sports journalism? What was your story? How did you get into this thing that we all love here called sports journalism? So tell the audience a little bit about how you got into the sports journalism game.
0: So I I, I you know, spent my high school and middle school years um, on school papers and like journalism a lot, but I went to a school that was a little bit unique. It just had kind of a core curriculum, St. John's college in Annapolis, Maryland, and everybody read the great, the quote unquote great books. And so I came out of there thinking, I want to go to law school, but I also started playing basketball and I started playing basketball for the intramural women's team. And then I started playing for the intramural men's team. And then I played a year with an intercollegiate, our intercollegiate women's team. And, um, so that, I just started getting super into it. So when I moved to New York afterwards, I thought I wanted to go to law school, but I kept playing pickup basketball wherever I could. And um, I lived in Park Slope at the time, so I played at the Prospect Park Y, yeah. and I'd play on you know playgrounds or wherever. And then I started, um, the firm that I worked for had t- uh, season tickets to the Knicks. So I started going to Knicks games, and that just kind of fueled everything. And then I realized it didn't take me long after working in a law firm to realize it was not the life for me. Um, and I remember I was, um, rollerblading in Prospect Park with my friend, Nadja James. Um, and I was like, what am I going to do? I don't want to go to law school. And, you know, I'd been lamenting about John Starks and the Knicks, you know, right about the same time. And she said, Jane, you should be a sports writer. And I was like, oh my God, I should be a sports writer. So, so I went to J school and worked my way up, started covering high schools at Newsday part-time making $11 an hour. Um, and then, and kind of worked my way up uh, the hard way and I've loved it and it's, it was exactly the right thing. And I think part of it was like, I just didn't even envision the idea that I could be a sports writer growing up cause there just, there weren't a ton of role models that I was intersecting with. And in, you know, I grew up in Virginia, Nebraska and I remember seeing Leslie Visser just like, you know thinking, oh my gosh, um, that's so cool. But I didn't really think I could do it until the moment Nadja said it to me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I think it's beautiful that another one, not just a woman, right? Another woman empowered you to say, hey, you know what? You can you can do this um, as well, too. Now, I knew when I when we first met, you were writing for ESPNW a lot. And I see you at the Jets uh, all, all, all the time. Um, what's your transition been since then, To I know there's been a lot that's happened from then to now to, you know, being a columnist for the Daily News and working for Maris, What's that transition been like?
0: Well, it's great. So um, I actually took an opportunity when, when ESPN had the massive layoff with 100 people, and I was unfortunately included in that, but used the opportunity to move to London for two years with my family, my husband and our two kids who are high school age. And um, we traveled all over Europe and we saw, you know, I covered I covered Wimbledon, I covered a bunch of sports there, I saw Premier League games. Uh, became a Tottenham fan, like you know. Oh no,
1: of- I'm a Liverpool fan. I'm a Liverpool fan, so uh-huh. <laughs> what, what, What's your
0: What's your deal? What do you have? Like, what do you have going on with that? <laughs>
1: oh, 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 with
0: Liverpool.
1: Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. Oh yeah, I'm a Liverpool fan. Oh yeah, I'm a Liverpool fan. Oh yeah, Liverpool fan. Um, huge Liverpool fan. We won, we won the EPL, so I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the first time in a very
1: in long 30 time. years so I'm, I'm happy well i'm glad you became a tottenham fan and became a fan of english premier soccer so that's good glad glad that yeah, happened
0: yeah. well exactly and, and thank goodness you know it did that because it's a one sport that continues to yes. go on in this um landscape but then i ended up uh you know reaching maris reached out to me and and i looked at that position and i uh i taught at columbia graduate school of journalism i taught their sports journalism class for a number of years and adjuncted before that so it seemed like a natural transition and also something that I just was super jazzed about. I, did, I think you guys might have this experience too, where sometimes something presents itself and you're just like, it's kind of like when Naja told me I should be a sports writer. You know, I kind of looked at this and I was like, Ooh, you know, like that, I could do that. Like, I think I could get really into that. Um, and it, that's exactly what it's been like. And, and I, I, I love what I'm doing now. And I love intersecting with students and talking to them and um, trying to help them forge their careers. And, you know, we were able to do stuff like bring in Michael Smith from ESPN at the time he was at ESPN We started this conversation. And, and he taught an interviewing class for us this spring, which was incredible for our students. And so like things like that, I get really excited about in um, kind of providing opportunities like that and, and facilitating conversations. And it's been, it's been really good.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely it's absolutely been great great to see that and see that you're doing that. So one of the reasons, Jane, uh, we asked you to come on this episode is you wrote what I think is a fantastic piece, and I had to reach out to you about it about sports, the return of sports as we're seeing now, right? Well, the the NBA is scheduled to return on July third, July 30th, 31st. you uh, remember now baseball even uh, a week before that, um, and you talked about sports. Not returning because society right now isn't healthy. That is sort of the the crux of your of your piece. Um, what were your thoughts when you started working on this, to to write on this? Um, you know, and the inspiration of just looking at everything that's going on and saying, "Hey, I don't I don't think we should be maybe doing this in this way right now."
0: Right. Well, it started really at the you know in March when when Rudy Gobert tested positive and. Um, and the NBA, uh, you know, a lot of the players got tested, a lot of them came back positive. And I think that was kind of like when nationally we started to realize, you know, we come to so many realizations as a culture through sports. And I think that moment was where we kind of realized that this is something that's really gonna be serious. It's just, we can't pretend it's happening someplace else, it's, it's here. And, um, and so I started thinking about it then. And, and And it made sense to me that things shut down, right? Because contact sports are, impossible really um if somebody is sick you will get sick if you're breathing across the line of scrimmage or if you're you know going up for a rebound with somebody like just the opportunities for for transmission are are so High. And I, I became really interested in kind of looking at like studies out of South Korea and studies out of China about the transmission rates. There are all these interesting studies that will show you like in a Zumba class, the instructor had coronavirus and, and there a large number of the students in that class got it. So, or, or choirs where people are singing is another vector. Um, there was a call center in, I believe it's South Korea where, where people would be um, sitting at desks, kind of, from each other. And there was a lot of transmission there as well. And so I think this tells us a little bit of something, right, which is, uh, you know, respiratory droplets, obviously, and and voices, yelling, um, which are all things that we do in sports, not just as players, but as fans, too. Um, And, you know, I've been somebody who's who's played sports my whole life, not only, you know, pick up basketball and basketball, but I also played roller derby for seven years. And um, I've kept in touch with women's flat track derby association and some people there. And they came up with this really interesting plan to return to play, which is very player centric, right? Because they don't have the economic considerations that a lot of these leagues are facing. And, um, and it's all about when is it safe for you to literally play a contact sport with someone in your community? And the way that they did it was they came up with a mathematical formula that looked at rate of transmission in in a region per 100,000 people. And like you plug in your numbers, transmission population, all this other stuff, and it it comes out and gives you like a score of, uh, and then on that score you you put yourself on one of seven, you know, phases of returning to play. Hmm. Um, so that's that's where I started thinking about this. And then with everything that's happened and the numbers going up, I mean, it's for a while I thought, okay, let's let's see how these leagues in the United States return to play. We saw it happening, you know, with baseball in South Korea. We saw it happening with um, soccer in Germany and now in um, the UK uh, and in Spain. And those are all places that dealt with the virus. And, and um, but clearly like the rate of transmission in those EU countries um, and Asian countries is so much lower compared to what we're facing in this country that uh, I think it's just, you know, you can't ignore it. You can't pretend it's not happening. And I think there there's a lot of kind of wishful thinking in our nation right now about this. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to a concert or a movie or whatever, a bar, restaurant. And it's another thing to say, um, I want you all to entertain me. Hmm. Uh, and so you all have to do this. Hmm. for entertainment. So I just, you know, kind of thinking about that. It's, it's a real, you know, we have a problem in this country where a lot of people are unwilling to pull in the same direction to get people to get us past this. I mean, the real challenge we're facing as a nation now has nothing to do with sports. Um, And we are not playing as a team in some ways. And I think that, that ultimately is kind of what we're facing at the moment.
2: Right. And I mean, I want to read an excerpt from the story, actually, that you wrote, which is touching on what exactly what you just mentioned, where you're talking about, you know, we want sports back. But as a society, we aren't willing to do what's necessary in order to get them back. We have a president, and I love this part, we have a president who won't wear a mask because it makes his ego look tiny. I howled at laughing
0: at that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> and, you. I, I didn't wonder about putting that
1: in. <laughs> I love that you, I love that you put it in, Jane. Loved it.
2: Thank you. And psycho uh psychopaths who um follow him uh who follow him make all sort of convoluted excuses for why they can't do the thing that would let many of us just go about our business. And it lends to something that Dexter and I talked about we were on the phone last night, where it's like, if we shut, because at the beginning of all of this, I was saying, can we shut down for like eight weeks, everything, and then just figure it out. I feel like that's kind of what the European countries did that you're talking about. I feel like that's kind of what a lot of the world did, at least in some way, the number itself, eight may vary, but they were able to shut everything down. And now they're looking a lot better than we are where we're still in late June, almost July, and we have, coincidentally, some red states. But states nonetheless, Arizona, Florida, and Texas, really spiking up because they want to be uh, on the other side of this so badly. And it's what it's doing is it's collaterally affecting everything else going on around them, as in the underprivileged communities that black and brown people live in that aren't asking to be part of the spike. Now we're getting uh, really, you know really hurt by this because people who are black and latino don't really have the access to healthcare in the same way that other people do in this country so is that something that obviously you thought about in all of this and something you kept in the back of your mind
0: yeah at 100 100%, 100% because you know again it's the idea of who is the who is the, the essential employee right the essential employee is often somebody who's paid uh, low wages in order to do work that is not is not well compensated and it is it, it, also not work that maybe a lot of people don't want to do, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember the first couple of weeks when we were getting our groceries delivered, every single time we had a, a, a grocery delivery, I would tip 40 bucks cash to the person who dropped it off because I felt like, okay, so you're risking in order to do this. There's the least I can do, mm-hmm. literally saving me. Not not just you're doing me a favor by delivering my groceries, but you are also going out into the world. Yeah. A, and that's a different equation. Right. That's a different equation when we ask somebody to do that. So and then and it, and we as a nation didn't decide to compensate them to, you know, to a large degree uh, more. And it, so so I do think there and I do think that this is it's not just an issue of what we want. It's also a moral issue of how we are. What what are what are we ethically contributing? Right. Like we want, but we don't want to give. We want to take, but we don't want to give. And yeah. this is, you know, in, in society, you make a compact, right? And, and I do think there's a lot to that. We, we're asking the most of the people that we are least able to give it financially and from a health point of view. And I do think that's, um, I do think that's something, I mean, honestly, like, so, you know, we have, we have almost 200 students in our program. And one of them um, is, one of my black students was the first one who said to me, I have a lot of family members who are, who ha- are dealing with this. So, you know, just even anecdotally, early on, I was hearing, you know, stuff like that and, and keeping it um, in mind. And, and, I, and I do think that's a huge part of, I think, the problem with the NCAA allowing all of these uh, football workouts to happen without, um, without having real safety and uh, structures in place for these quote-unquote student-athletes. Again, out of all of the people in our pantheon of sports, we are asking the most of them and they, have the, and they have the least, right, in terms of compensation, in terms of, in terms of player representation. There are, are, you know, it's very much, I think, um, and I think we've all been sensitized to it, I certainly hope so, by the protests around the killing of George Floyd, um, that these are, you know, you may not like to see these imbalances that are happening, um, but we certainly do see them in, we have them in sports, whether you choose to see them or not. and. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and I think we as, as fans and certainly as uh, broadcasters and writers have a responsibility to not shield our eyes anymore when it comes to this. I kind of, you know, my, my daughters are, are very, um, very engaged politically. And they have asked me if I think that this time is different. Um, and, I, and I don't know that it's different in terms of what's going to happen at a federal level in terms of laws. Uh, I am very cynical about that. But I do think the scales have fallen from our eyes in a way. Like, I think there's a large swath of America that's not going to be able to unsee a lot of the inequity that we see right now in societies. And I I think it's playing out in sports in so many different ways as well.
2: How has, uh, I guess, your students shaped your perspective Maybe a little bit differently because now I mean it's not like you're just a journalist full time. You're working with a lot of kids, and you mentioned you know one of your black students who knows a lot of people who has been affected by this. So, and I get I'm assuming that you've been talking to them throughout all of this. And how is that sort of dynamic added to how you're experiencing and processing just everything that's going on between obviously COVID-19 and then the protests and you know these kids that you're managing, so to speak, for lack of a better word, they're about to step out into this world and look at what's going on as they're as some of them are about to graduate.
0: Well, I think they there also always has been a conversation around what is it we as journalists are allowed to say and observe. Right, the idea that like, well, I just both sides it. Um, if we have an issue that we're talking about, I say, what does this person believe, and then what does this person believe? And you know, it's it reminds me of that phrase that journalism is not asking two people what the weather is; it's looking outside and seeing if it's raining. Yeah. And um, and I think that a lot of people now are kind of coming to the idea. And we as as people who are teaching are kind of looking at well, we have to make sure that people can use their judgment about the rain in this situation. And, and, um, and I do think that oftentimes, uh, I think women and people of color who come into journalism have been told that they can't have an opinion about things, they have to be completely neutral. And often that neutrality has been the universal white male voice. And it doesn't, and, and and I think we're actually having more conversations about that. And students are having more conversations about that. And they're, not as willing to say, okay, I want to adopt that voice. Now, that doesn't mean that we put our biases out there and we're writing opinion pieces, right. but it does mean that we're recognizing what we think, we're fully reporting around our blind spots and our weaknesses and talking to the people we may not think we agree with to make sure we're getting a fully formed, fair um Article Now, is it, you know, and, and getting, getting all of the facts and doing the best service that we can for our readers so that they have all of the information available. But I don't think it's that we have to pretend that we don't see a, an unequal power structure, for example, or that we don't see that, you know, in the NCAA, revenue generating sports are predominantly played by uh, people of color and that they're primarily profited off of by uh, white culture and white institutions. So I think you know, those are the kinds of things I think that we're, we're starting to talk about. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing, honestly, to, to kind of put your blinders on and say, I don't see race and I don't see how it's affecting this story is no longer an acceptable way of looking at something or doing your job. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a
1: free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash A-H-T-T. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I want to read something from the, the piece that you wrote um, that, I, that really hit me. You said sports are the least of our societal problems. What this pandemic has revealed is that we are not a functional country anymore. We have ceased to be a society where people are willing to pull in the same direction to save lives and get our transmission rate down like other Western democracies have been able to do. We cry liberty as a way of removing all civic obligation. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things I think that if somebody reads your piece, one of the retorts, and I think it's an easy retort, is that Sports unites people. And I've always argued, I'm not necessarily sure that has been true throughout history, right? There there, there people, I think people like to use that a little bit as a crutch. But in this time of sports returning, um, people are going to say the country needs sports. We heard Adam Silver say it um, Mm -hmm. in in terms of the NBA's return. What do you say to people that will come back at you with that? The country needs sports right now. We need to heal. We're going through these tough times. We need to see these games. What do you say to
0: that? Well, one, I mean, there are a couple of things, I think. Number one, I think we need to play. Like, we talk about sports as though there are these, these just things that we're spectating. We need to play. We need our kids to be out on the field. We need to, you know, I, I want to, I mean, I don't play a lot of pickup basketball anymore, but theoretically, I would like to play. I mean, you know, it's one thing, you know, you can go for runs, you can cycle, whatever, but it's it'd go to the gym. But I think we miss sports, like, that we're actually participating in. So I, I kind of say, like, well, why would we just want to get sports back? from a spectating level and not want to put the same amount of, it, of attention and time and, and, and thinking about how we can get them back for ourselves. Um, and then I also think about what different athletes have said, like right, Malcolm Jenkins was saying, you know, sport, football is not essential. I'm not an essential employee as a football player. Um, and then there are a number of NBA players who have wondered whether or not bringing back the NBA is gonna distract from something that means a lot to a lot of NBA players which is the fight for social justice in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And uh, so there are a lot of things at hand. I, I do say I love, you know, obviously I love sports because I've chosen to spend my life thinking about them and covering them and playing them. Um, but at the same time, I don't think sp- sports should be a distraction from something that's a real issue. The, you know, I think back in World War II, you did you did have different leagues that came back and people really cared about that. And it really, it really lifted people's spirits um, at that time. But a pandemic you know, is something where you if you are playing sports, you are passing that virus unless, if there is someone on the field or on the court that has it. So it's a different kind of thing. And, and you know, so to me, that, that is what I say to that. We can't wish it away. Uh, I think it's also unfair to say like, yeah, well, of course they're going to get it, and, but they're probably not going to die. Um, I think that's a horrible way to look at a group of people who, who you uh, purport to be a fan of. Um, you know, Von Miller uh, caught it um, and, you know, uh, for the it plays in the NFL. And, and he said that he still has lung issues as a result. Like he, he was saying that it has affected his ability to breathe long after he, it resolved as an illness. And so I just think, you know, yeah, there, there are players who have things like, you know, sickle cell trait, which is obviously a risk factor, uh, asthma, diabetes, things that they don't have to necessarily. Blast out to the world um, their own personal medical information, but stuff that would definitely affect them and make them particularly susceptible to this. So, to me, I think you know, it's one thing to um, to say we want sports back. It's another thing to say these players must risk for me um, in this environment, and uh, I just I don't I don't feel comfortable with that. I I think it's fine for players to make the choice. To balance the risk versus the income. I mean, I think for adults to make that decision is great. I don't think you can make that. I don't think you can make that decision for NCAA players who are not compensated in a currency that could say pay for healthcare or medical services if they were to become sick from this. So I think that there's a different calculus for quote unquote amateur sports and for pro sports. But th- but those are the things that I think about. And and I, and I just think that's. It's very glib to say, you know, entertain me um, as opposed to thinking, how can we get back to a place as a society where we can be entertained, where we can play, where we can go to restaurants, where we can actually do and participate. People want the sports part back, but we really have to do the work to get us all back um, as a society, and as a healthy society. Um, That's kind of, that's where I land on that.
2: Do you think that there's a path to, Potentially, well, two part question. One, do you think there's a path to in pro sports doing both, as in, you know, focusing on everything that like NBA players and NFL players, social justice, what they want to focus on and them playing, because there are a bunch of them who do want to play, even though not everyone is obviously, you know, there are some players opting out. And secondly, do you think that it should be handled differently for college sports? And should they just get rid of fall sports entirely? Because that's a totally different situation. They're not necessarily like their care is not really in the best interest of the universities. It seems. And you're seeing a lot of kids theoretically get, COVID cases under the watch of Clemson and this school and that school. So do you think that that should be approached differently between pro sports and college sports overall?
0: Yeah. So I I do think there's a way to probably try to do it. Um, And I think because, because Bundesliga and KBO have been able to make this happen. They've had cases. It's not that they haven't had cases, but they've been really responsible about it and they're doing it slowly and methodically. And it seems like that they, that, primarily the, um, the goal is public health, is to have a healthy sport in the safest way possible, even though we haven't eradicated the pandemic. Okay, so I, I, see, I, I do see that, and I think it could be possible. Do I think it's possible in the state of Florida where you have 9,000 cases diagnosed in a day? Probably not. Yeah. You, I, I think um, that, that's, that's problematic, really problematic. Um, and you know, they're still, they're still going for. I mean, the, the problem is that MLS, WNBA and NBA have all picked Florida as the place to have their bubble. I mean, it's a, you know, it's like a, there's a snowstorm, there's a blizzard outside and you're going to have like a sunny day in the middle of that. And I just don't, I, mean, I think that's a really hard thing to try to create. Those are difficult conditions, right? You're going to have this is the thing about having a society that functions properly: is that you're going to have delivery trucks coming in. You're going to have people unloading those delivery trucks into whatever facility. You're going to have people preparing food for the people who are for NBA players and refs and some of the media that are there and um, and league officials. Like all of that has to happen in a way in a safe environment where nobody's going to be bringing it in. And um, you can't you can't have a true bubble. I don't think in that sort of a situation. You can try, but um, I don't think it makes sense. Now, I think, you know, the idea of going to Utah, like National Women's Soccer League is doing, and they're doing that starting today for their Challenge Cup. I mean, you know, that seems like a place where maybe maybe it could happen. It all depends, though, on how seriously players are going to take it, right? So you had Novak Djokovic do the Adria Tour. <sighs> and, <right. laughs>
1: sorry, I had to <laughs> sigh there. I'm sorry. What
0: <laughs> is the, the correct context, reaction? There. Yeah,
1: yeah, there's just a lot going on there. Go ahead, Jay. There's a lot. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's right. And and I think but you know what though? I look at that and I don't think, oh my gosh, Novak Djokovic is such a terrible person, an anti-vaxxer who wanted to do this and this is the result of that ha 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 laughing point. I think, yeah, like people are gonna do that. Like that life, right? Like the you're talking about a class of people between the ages of twenty and thirty. Like you can't tell me that there's not gonna be somebody who's like, uh, you know, there's this unlocked door that you can get in if you all prop it open and you could get in that way or, you know, if we all went out, um, you know, we don't tell anybody and you know, I mean it, is this, is, right, this is like right? Are we we were all in, you know, like we, we were all younger we, and like,
1: did things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. If there are rules, people will break them. Right, and so I think you have to have it where it's not only like, oh, we have a bubble and everything's cool, but it also has to be like, and if there's a little bit of fudging of the rules, it's probably, you know, we probably could absorb that, um, or there's not so much virus out there that it would absolutely destroy it. Um, and I don't think we're at that place yet. Um, and I, I think you are exactly right on when you talk about NCAA sports. This more than any other uh, sport that we watch should be player first, player safety first. It is not about making money in the bowls. It is not about March Madness. It is about player safety first. The NCAA has spent a lot of money so that the term student is put in in front of the term athlete. Hmm. And if they really believe that, they cannot have athletes in facilities before they have students in facilities. That is absolutely undercuts that entire argument. Um, If they are in there as athletes and they're in there first, they're there to make money for those schools. And that is, you know, let's be very honest about that. And as we said earlier, a lot of those, the the majority of those revenue generating sports, uh, the athletes are black and brown and they are in there before everybody else. And we know what these inequities in society are and we know what we are asking these students to do. Again, they are not compensated in cash money that they can spend as they like, like the pros are. They are instead given scholarships to schools, which is not without value. That is a valuable thing. Um, but uh, but it's a different kind of scholarship than your average student gets because they are limited in the classes that they can take. They are limited in the times that they can take those classes. They often are steered away from certain majors that require too much work. They uh, Their requirements for the schools take up a lot more of their Day, day than, you know, your average student, even a student that might be working for the school and have a job with the school. Um, so it's a very different kind of thing. And let's, let's be honest about that, as opposed to just saying, oh, they're just students there, and they're getting a free ride. And you know, they're, you know, going to frat parties, it's not the way they live on campus. So I think that it's, a, you know, that having if you really want and feel it's important to have them back, that they have to be front and center. So this thing with Clemson, where 28 students tested positive for this 28 students. I mean, that's the, if the fact that the NCAA didn't shut it all down the day after that happened, the fact that those, those college administrators aren't coming in and shutting things down, the fact that there aren't third party epidemiologists who are setting the standards for every single thing that takes place in that training facility. I mean, there should be, to me, this is just a a clear uh, dereliction of duty from the NCAA that this is happening on its watch.
1: Yeah, I it's I think it's interesting that the NFL said that they will have some coronavirus policies or, you know, things that they'll have in place. But the NCAA has had nothing. With that being said, Jane, um, there's this talk about seeing college football in the fall. Right. And there's talk about the NFL coming in the fall. We had a, somebody, you know, as well, too, a mutual friend, Kimberly Martin. She was on the on the podcast and she said to me, hey, Dex, I think the NFL is coming back and we'll start on time. And you know this, Jane, from being around football. Football has, and college football too, large rosters, tons of staff. I just personally don't see in the numbers, when we talked about the transmission at the beginning of this podcast with all that and the large staff and the large rosters, I just kind of don't see how that's possible. But with everything that we're seeing now, with the NBA coming back, with MLB coming back, do you think there's a lot of pressure on the NFL to come back on time even though they've canceled the hall of fame game do do you think the pressure do you think they'll come back on time i'm i don't really know what to make about it but capitalism is what it is and people (laughs) want to make their money right so yeah what do you think what do you think happens in the fall what do you think we see with those sports
0: well i think we have to see what's happening with the virus first like everything's contingent on that you know um Get, as Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. One of my, and, favorite, uh, quotes.
1: my favorite quotes. Yeah, I'm by too. Because <laughs> he love knows
2: it. I'm a boxing
0: guy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's and that's a great, that's a great, that's a great, like that's. I think that's the. We've been punched in the mouth. Like we're getting punched in the mouth over and over again, and people are like, "No, no, I still got a plan." So I don't. <laughs> that's kind of the way I look at it. I. I think it's kind of unbelievable. It's like I'm watching this fight, and I'm like, the fight should probably be called. And they're like, no, no, <laughs> I got I still got a plan.
2: Um, Send the out there. Yep.
0: Exactly. Tape them up. Get them back out. So you know, I. I so I. If, first of all, like you know, Texas had this plan where they were going to have Cowboy Stadium, fifty percent, an indoor stadium, fifty percent mm-hmm. fill for an NFL game. I mean, you first of all, you have to have it so that people can travel between states safely, stay in hotels. Like those players are all going to be staying in hotels. That's the way it works. Um, do you see that happening? We ha- now keep in mind we were told that there would be uh, low rates of transmission in the summer and that the second wave would come back in the fall. Well, no one is saying that there's not going to be a second second wave. Although I I don't I, I don't think we're getting rid of this one. So maybe a second crest. Another right. To but if we have more in the fall than we have now. I just don't see how you have players traveling from a region like Texas or whatever the next region is that's dealing with this, or Arizona, and then going back to New York. Like that is an absolute recipe for creating outbreaks in the United States. From a public health standpoint, it's a disaster to even think about that. But that's the plan. Um, And then, you know, then I also think about just how how are players. across the line of scrimmage and they're breathing, you know, in each other's faces and you get the white puff of air coming out every single time they exhale. Well, that's how you transmit this disease. Um, So even though it's outdoors, I mean, you're just on top of people. I mean, an NFL field is disgusting as you guys. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) You know,
1: like, I
0: mean, people are spitting, people are, you know, like it's, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, it's, It's just their bodily fluids are, you know, you may not think about this just as a fan watching the game, but like if you're down there, you know what's happening. And so it's just going to be impossible for if somebody has it on the field, the potential for transmission to everybody else is there. So, you know, they have to be comfortable with that. Every single player has to be comfortable with that. And the NFL has to be comfortable with it. They also have to be comfortable with the idea that someone could die. Coach, player, like I said, not everybody's going to tell you they have sickle cell trait. Heck, might not even know they have it um but might be something where their their immune system or their ability to fight this off is particularly weak are we all good with that you know i think a lot of people are and but but you know you might not feel like that's a comfortable place to be so
1: last thing jane before we get you out of here i'll bring it back to the sports that we know that are coming back within the next couple of weeks baseball basketball I think the question around this, that you kind of hit upon it and just in talking about the NFL, but it's that something bad can happen, right? Whether it's a, a outbreak, many outbreaks happens in the bubble, right? Or or worse, as you even said, and I think it's real. I'm glad you said it. Somebody dying, right? That That's very possible and real that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. Do you see any of this, these sports that are coming back soon? Do you see this going right in terms that they'll play and will get crowned a champion in those leagues? Or does this go horribly wrong, in your opinion? And is that sort of the wake-up call that America will need if something happens in sports that it goes horribly
0: wrong? Listen, if we haven't had the wake-up call yet, Ugh. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it, that, that that troubles me, you know? It troubles me that people aren't taking things seriously mm-hmm. yet. I Yeah, I'm, I almost think I I know at the beginning of this, I was like, that's crazy. We should not be playing, you know, uh, full contact sports. Um, But I do see other places where it's happened. So my thinking is let's mitigate this thing, right? Try to actually get this mitigated and then get our sports back. i you know, I definitely would like to see sports played again (laughs) sooner rather than later. I, you know, I like to have a good four or five fantasy teams going at any given time for seasons, just so that I can, you know, I love, I love doing that. And, you know, it's, it's fun. And, and I miss it thinking that, you know, it's all like August is going to roll around and we're not going to be picking our fantasy teams. Um, but at the same time, you know, I just, I think that we have bigger problems right now as a society and that we need to think about okay, great, sports will come back when we're able to go visit our grandparents and hug them. You know, sports will come back when, you know, we're able to have a a lower unemployment rate, when people aren't losing their jobs right and left. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but part of the things that I've done is every month when I pay my bill, I I send a nice check to our local food pantry, because I know that there are people in my community that are really hurting as a result of this. And it's about, so to me, I think about it, it's about a lot more than sports. And I want to get I want to get us back to a place, and I want to be pulling in the right direction, so that we can all get back to a place where we we have lives that we're happier with, where we're not worried about our our at risks older relatives uh, dying of this thing. Um, you know, where the where I, I mean I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I know a lot of people who work in the healthcare industry. Yep. You know, and I I worry Family about members. Yeah. exactly. So, like, you know, they're sitting there and they're getting a viral load and healthcare workers are dying from this because they're getting so much virus exposure that it doesn't matter that they're young and healthy. It just matters that they're actually they're taking care of people who are sick. So to me, like, those are the things that I want back before I worry about whether or not the NBA and Major League Baseball are going to save their season, really. I think that's where our
1: priority should be. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely, definitely on that boat. I definitely feel the same way. That is Jane McMahon. She's. You have one more question for Jane. Go ahead, Jane. If you have time for one more question. question.
2: As a journalist, um, how do you see this shaping up the media industry? Being that it was already tough to get full time work before for a lot of people, or just stable work in general, something that I've experienced, something that Dexter's experienced, something that you've experienced as well. And, you know, how do you see this shaping moving forward? Because we're not only seeing, you know, suffrage from the pandemic, but now there's sort of a call to, all right, let's actually be about about like getting black people in our offices, getting Latino people in our offices, getting legitimate diversity here. We're seeing the ringer come under fire uh, among other places and things like that. So how do you see that shaping out? Because me and Dexter talk about this, and that's something that we're at least a little more optimistic about moving forward. Uh, But ultimately, we'll have to see results to really see that being lived through, I guess.
0: So the fact that I'm I'm old and have been in the industry for a long time is actually going to help you here because I remember when I got in the business in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, diversity was a real priority. There were newspapers that really wanted to make sure that they had women on staff, that they had people of color on staff. Um, That changed, I think, during my career as the industry started to shrink. I think it became less of a priority because there were fewer jobs available. So those jobs went to That guy you knew or heard about, or the, you know, Mm -hmm. it became more of a, um, you know, less of a, let's have a huge job search and really get somebody we don't know who has a lot of potential. It became about, we have one job, we're not gonna, and I had already talked to this person and I think they'd be good, so I'm just gonna kind of make that happen. So I I do think that that actually is um, something that's gonna change. I certainly hope so. People are very sensitive to it now, Uh, they always should have been, of course. But I think now there's um, more of a, again, the scales have fallen from our eyes. Um, but the jobs have to come back before that can happen. So that's the that's the problem. We need sports back before we can have that happen. So let's get society healthy and then we'll get the media industry back and then we'll be able to make sure that it's a diverse industry. I mean, that's best case scenario. But yeah. I do, do think, you know again, as I tell my students, you may have to do something right now that is not your dream job and is not the job you're going to have. It's not your career. It's going to be a job that you do until you can do the thing you want to do. And I think that ultimately is where a lot of us in journalism are going to be for the next year or so. But I do hope, you know, people care about sports and when it comes back, it's going to come back so big. Like everybody, you know, people are not going to be like, oh, I'd forgotten about sports. No, that's going to be just the opposite. They're going to want to read about it and be be about it. And boy, and sports betting will be up and running, I'm pretty <laughs> sure, um, really quickly. So there, it will change, definitely. And if somebody has like an idea for a site or a way that they want to present sports that's different, uh, I, this is a great time to do it because out of chaos can emerge some really good ideas that maybe would have been tougher to get recognition or seen in the, a crowded landscape. But when things come back, they're going to come back big. I really do believe that.
1: Yeah. No, no I, I think the same too. Jane, thank you for your time. That is Jane McManus. She is a sports columnist for uh, the New York daily news. You can check out her piece. We haven't done what it takes for sports to safely return. Uh, we discussed it. I encourage everybody to read it. It's great. And she's also the director of Marist center for sports communication. Jane, we thank you again for coming yes. and sharing your time and your knowledge and you being a strong voice for everyone, especially for women out there. You know, I'm very proud of the work you do. So please continue, continue that work. It's so thank needed, you. it's needed out there.
0: Well, it was great talking to you too. And anytime you want me to come back, you got my number.
1: Definitely. I'll de- we, sure. de- we definitely will have you back to talk. Jane, thank you so much. Appreciate you.
0: All right, take care.
1: Right.
0: One time for your mind, one time. One time for your mind, one time.
1: One time for your mind. Haven't done this in a little bit, but we are back bringing you things that are going on in the world that you might have missed or not heard about. Um, We always have something interesting. And obviously at this time, there's a lot going on in the world um, other than things going on in sports. Uh, Brian, what do you got for this week's one time for your mind?
2: Came across a story that NBC Latino posted on Twitter. Uh, Headline is mainland Puerto Ricans in urban areas are disproportionately exposed to COVID-19 data shows the center for investigative journalism Now, this is the subheadline, so people don't think that the headline is so long. Uh, The Center for Investigative Journalism found that areas with the highest number of infections and deaths coincide with the counties – no, with counties with the highest proportion of Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans who are largely in New York, New Jersey, where we've seen the worst of it or at least the first wave, uh, the worst of the first wave, and now Florida – where a lot of Puerto Ricans live in places like Orlando, Kissing Me, Florida, some in Miami. Miami's a lot of Cubans, a lot of black people as well by Miramar. And what this story gets into is just like how Puerto Ricans are being affected by this. And I didn't want to bring it up just to share that perspective, but it's more <clears throat> just the collateral damage that could be done by sheer ignorance. So most of the people, not all of the people, because I'm sure you'll find some Hispanic folks and black folks who – also, you know, think that this is all bullshit, who think that you don't have to wear a mask, who want to be free. Like, yeah, I'm sure. But it's largely white folks. And that's evident by the states who are really spiking right now, who are making the rest of us look bad and look like a laughing stock worldwide. That is Arizona. That is Texas. That is Florida. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, red states. Now, Florida, as diverse as it is, Texas, very diverse. Arizona, very diverse. And what's happening there is in Arizona, you have a lot of Mexican folks. In Texas, you also have a lot of Mexican folks, uh, other places as well. But I'm, but um, and a lot of Black folks as well in both of those places, especially parts of Texas, Houston, etc. Then in Florida, you have a lot of uh, Puerto Ricans that are in Orlando, like I mentioned. Dominicans that are in places like Tampa, Cubans all over the place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what's going to happen as this continues to spike? The disproportionate effect is going to continue to affect the black and brown communities who don't have access to covid testing as much who don't have access to healthcare because of where they live because systemically and this is what we're all fighting for things are just designed to keep it that way because people weren't able to take advantage of this sooner or white people have been able to take advantage of this of this system that has left black and brown communities at a disadvantage and that's why you know in neighborhoods where you know you're growing up and in your neighborhood there's going to be a lot of like you know there might be a Starbucks there nowadays there mm-hmm. might be uh there might be a gym a nice little rec center where you can get right you know a juice store here you go to our neighborhoods and we're growing up, it's like, oh, shit, McDonald's is five minutes away. All right, we got lunch. We got dinner. You know what I'm saying? Get a couple quarter pounders, nuggets or whatever after basketball practice. What do we do? We get Chinese food and stuff like that. When you're in just better neighborhoods or neighborhoods that are higher priced and you're just afforded those luxuries because you grow up in them, you have access to more of these things, and that sort of keeps you – feeling like you're invincible when a pandemic comes around for lack of a better way of putting it. So I want people to just be considerate of the other people you can collaterally affect around you because a lot of the black and brown people who are suffering from this are disproportionately affected because they just simply don't have the access. And this is not a pull yourself up by the bootstrap situation because a lot of the older white folks and the conservatives are keeping their foot on the bootstraps that they want us to pick us up by. So
1: no, I, I well said, and I think it's real to talk about the fact that there are food deserts and obviously, you know, wealth inequalities among neighborhoods that you can definitely see. And the, inter- the other interesting thing you bring up, Brian, is if you add another layer to that is when you look at the problems that are in those neighborhoods and why you're seeing a lot of the, the rise in the Latino population in these neighborhoods and in these places being affected by COVID-19 for all the reasons you mentioned, what's even further sad is that in these neighborhoods, as you talked about, how there are different things in different neighborhoods. Well, when gentrification starts to happen in these black or Latino neighborhoods, then you start to see in these neighborhoods not to have the food deserts they used to be, and it makes you wonder, and it's fair to question, why all along... And when I say you, I mean white people and the people that have had the power structure or hold the power structure in this country, why you haven't cared about improving these neighborhoods until you've seen your people came in, come in. And I think mm-hmm. the point that, that you're making as well, too, is that, hey, well, now that there's numbers and raw data and attention on this and you can see it, it is not enough to just ignore that Latino people in this country on the mainland of the U.S. Um, are necessarily being hurt by this at a harsh, very, very, very harsh rate. And sadly, if we don't stop and do something about this, if we don't start caring about the healthcare, if we don't start caring about the food deserts, then more minorities that are disproportionately expected about, especially the Latino population, are going to die, unfortunately. This is what's going to happen. Um, And a lot of, another thing I'd like to add, and Brian, you know this because this is very close to home for you, a lot of those people in those communities are also in the places of healthcare as we heard earlier in this podcast, Jane talking about taking care of people in, that are dealing with COVID. So they are also at yeah. even greater risk for that, yeah. too. Not just it's not even point. having to access healthcare, They're actually working in the places where they have to take care of these people. And, you know, that's a huge problem. And definitely attention yeah. needs to be brought to that for sure. I
2: have, fa- I have family members that I live with who work in hospitals. You know what I'm saying? Multiple. Yeah. Um, And obviously, we're a Puerto Rican family. So yeah, the story itself on NBCNews.com, again, just mainland Puerto Ricans. In urban areas are disproportionately disproportionately exposed to COVID nineteen. Data shows, and remember that story to me. While it's about Puerto Ricans, it also is a reflection of just how minorities have to navigate through this differently. And we can't have that level of ignorance that other
1: people are having in this country. Absolutely. So, for my for my story this week, I you know came across this has kind of been in the news around stuff going on in Hollywood, um, and it really has to do with actors and actresses maybe doing voice acting portraying characters that they are not the ethnicity of and oh. this this will touch on brian a lot and you're laughing because brian always talks a lot about the fact we talk about this in journalism we talk about opportunities being taken away no go ahead brian what are you saying Because you're pointing so, for people who can't he, listen brian is pointing to a character from grand theft auto that is behind him in his background but go ahead
2: Eco bellick was played by a, a white dude from i think new jersey Who just had the accent i guess i don't his name was like john find something i don't know if he came from out of respect i don't know if he came from like european you know descent and was able to do it but they didn't get like because the way nico bellick talks is very you know like off the boat immigrant european from you know outside of america it was his first time in new york or liberty city rather so yeah the voice actor who played him uh, he just kind of looks like a dude. You know what I mean?
1: Well, wait, I mean, if, if Nico Bellic has European ties, or you're, you know, I mean that he can tie to that. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with it. Now, if he was doing some like Dominican character or Puerto Rican character or something else, that's where it gets tough. that's where it gets murky, right? And and I, I'm glad you brought up gaming because that'll tie into something I'm I'm gonna tie into later. But I'm glad you brought that up. So. This was brought to my attention and I saw that this is around a show that I watch on Netflix called Big Mouth, a cartoon series started by Nick Kroll, really hilarious, a lot of jokes about puberty and growing up and sex and it's it's a really funny cartoon. I, Brian I actually think you would like it a lot. Um I don't know what that says that I'm saying about Brian, but I think <laughs> Brian would like it a lot. Anyway, I think it's hilarious. And this week actor and comedian Jenny Slate announced that she would no longer voice the character of Missy, who's a young black girl um, in the cartoon series, and pretty much a prominent black character um, in, in the series. And Slate, um, Jenny Slate wrote that, she put out a, a message and said, at the start of the show, I reasoned with myself that I promis- it was permissible for me to play Missy, because in the show, Missy's mom is Jewish and white, um, as she is, Jenny Slate is, but Missy is also black in the show, and black characters in an animated show should be played by black people. Um, I think it's fair to agree with that now slate has apologized for this He said I acknowledge how my original reasoning was flawed that it existed as an example of white privilege and unjust allowances made within a system of societal white supremacy and that me playing missy i was engaging in an active erasure of black people slate's right in all this it is the privilege it is an erasure of black people in this, and it goes to something Brian's always talked about in terms of journalism, right? To just tie it back into this, when you're when you're not looking to give opportunities to people, you are, you know, you're taking it away. Here's a situation where you have a clearly black character, and you and you can't get a black person to voice it. Brian happened to bring up video games, and I'm sure that some people that might listen to this and say, "Well, what does it matter? If you have voice acting talent, you should be able to voice anybody." No, I just you you should you could, but there are opportunities for people who could really tap into that voice and that culture that know it, and I think that's fair and fine, and they should be able to express that. One a game that I love a game that I've loved, one of my favorite games of all time is is The Last of Us, and I'm right now currently playing part two. And what I've noticed about The Last of Us and they've done, and this was more so in the first game, at least from what I knew of the voice actors and the people who did it, and the motion capture and everything, if somebody was a certain ethnicity. It was played by somebody of a certain ethnicity, and I have yeah. a lot of respect for Naughty Dog for doing that in their voice acting and the motion capture. There was nothing that was different about it. We all have unique, unique experiences. If Brian and I were to do a video game and we were to do some voice acting, there are things Brian could bring out in his Puerto Ricanness that is going to shine through in that character, and there are things that are going to come out in my blackness or my Caribbeaness that is going to shine through in there. And it, 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 this needs to be shown, and it needs to be rep- needs to be representation. We speak about it a lot on people on the screen in terms of Hollywood, but we also need this in terms of people who are off the screen doing voice acting, whether it's in cartoons, whether it's in video games, representation matters as well too. Now I do think there's one thing here. It is honorable of Jenny Slate to come out and apologize. And a lot has been put on the, this has happened in other shows now, and you're seeing a lot of actors coming out and doing this. But I do think there's one problem here. And the problem is let's not take the, Showrunners to some degree and the casting directors off the hook because when i see something that happened to a big mouth the question that goes to me is how did when you guys were casting this and you knew you had a black character that you thought it was okay in the first place to go and do this and have jenny slate be there so a lot of the brunt i seems to be these actors coming out, and, and I feel like most of the actors, I'll give Jenny Slate the credit, I want to say most. Jenny Slate seemed to have a, a, a response and apology that showed me that she got it, right? And acknowledged the points and why she got it. I'm not sure everybody has done the same. But this has to be on the casting directors. This has to be on the people who make the choices to do this. They have to get more heat on this. They have to be called out, and they have to be held accountable for this. Because these were... For choices. These were choices where they clearly chose to erase certain people and not go in a certain direction. You guys made the choice to not hire this person to do a black voice or a Latino voice. You specifically made that choice. And where are y'all? And how are you, how are you guys responding and being held accountable to this? So I encourage everybody now. Hey, this is the age of holding people accountable. Take a look at some of your favorite cartoons. Take a look at some of your favorite video games, and ask people. Oh, they do it. Brian looks like he's went and did some research now, because I know no. you I know you would. So go ahead.
2: No, but I heard of this last night, and I thought this is the one you were actually going to bring up. Yeah. Was uh, with Family Guy. So have you heard of the voice actor who plays Cleveland Brown?
1: You no. Know, so now I, I assume that he was. I did not hear about this. I assume that he's not black.
2: No. No. Not at all. His name is Mike Henry. He's a, he's a white dude. Well, I mean, uh, he's I, well I,
1: I mean, I usually I usually want to rock for the Henrys, but we're not yeah. rocking with you on this one. <laughs> I generally want to roll with the Henrys, but now.
2: So he said on Twitter yesterday, and this is totally adding to your one time for your mind, so this is excellent timing, but Mike Henry uh, basically said that after 20 years, or 21 years, because the series debuted in 1999, he's stepping down from voicing the character Cleveland Brown, which is obviously... Probably the prominent black character in Family Guy now that I think about it. Um, he said that on his Twitter account, Mike Henry did, it's been an honor to play Cleveland on Family Guy for 20 years. Uh, I love this character, but persons of color should play characters of color. Therefore, I'll be stepping down from this role, he tweeted
1: out. Imagine 20 years of being able to profit off of that, right? <laughs> and, like, and he's
2: 54 now, which means he got that role at 34.
1: Here's the for thing, once. man. There's a lot of blame to go around. Like, when you've done that for 20 years, I do look at that as even worse than Jenny Slate doing Missy for it because this is now coming up on the fourth season of Big Mouth. You profited off this for a long time. And I understand somebody gave you this. Not only did you profit, let's also be of note, not only did you profit off a family guy, Cleveland then got his own spinoff series on the Cleveland show, which I believe got canceled, but he did have his own spinoff series on that. So then you also further profited off of this. I'm actually surprised that this stuff hasn't come out earlier, but it shows. And and I'm not going to put any blame on people because I think a lot of us, you know, you play video games. I watch cartoons. I'm not always looking at who's voicing this stuff and doing it. But see, now in this age, people are checking for that. People are checking for this stuff. And I think that it's actually good. However, it's so layered. Right. Because Mike Henry He profited off off of this for 21 years, but so also did the creators of Family Guy. And never in one point did the creators of Family Guy, when they knew they were going to create a black character, said to themselves, "Yo, maybe we should get a black voice actor. And here's the thing. All this stuff has exposed themselves because it's like, why couldn't you find a black voice actor? Don't tell me you couldn't find a black voice actor or a Latino voice actor or whatever. People have been looking for this. And it makes me wonder about, um, I also saw, I know this has gone around with The Simpsons, too. The person there was this whole huge thing, I think it was a year or two ago, and somebody made a whole video slash little documentary on it about the voice of um I'm, forget if I'm getting the character wrong Abdul in this in the Simpsons. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, and somebody made a whole thing on it. I'm forgetting the person made the documentary on it, but talked about that. And yeah. I believe a white person does the voice. A I think it's a poo, a poo. I said yeah, Abdul, a yeah, yeah. poo. Sorry to my South Asian uh, brothers and sisters out there. But somebody else it, what, was doing uh, this character who was portrayed to be Indian. And, you know, it's a very stereotypically done um, Indian accent. And there's it's wild problematic. But I think, yes, the Simpsons showrunners and casting directors and creative all the creators behind this, they have to be under fire. They have to step up and say that we're going to do better. I don't think it's enough for the actors just coming out and saying yeah, you know, I understand that there's a race shirt and we shouldn't have done this, blah, blah, blah. It's okay. It's like, y'all, I'm looking at you creative directors. It's like, why did y'all think it was okay? And for some of y'all who have been rocking on this for so long, I think it's safe to say if none of this happened where people were not outraged about things that are going on in this country and people are really exposing a lot of things, you guys would have continued rocking on this longer. This is no different than NASCAR with the Confederate flag. Like, yeah, it's cool that you guys have told people they can no longer bring the Confederate flag to races. But I think it's also fair to question, why did it take you guys so long? And I'm looking at it the same way in Hollywood and video games, um, where there's definitely a problem with diversity in, in, in that realm that doesn't get talked about enough. That These things have to be addressed. So I guess a lot of this, when we wrap all this up for one time for your mind, it's, look, man, you got to expose the stuff like Ryan's talking about with Latinos and people of color being at risk. And also the erasure of people of color in spaces where people have profited. It's not enough to just want to use us and our culture. And I mean that for all people of color to use us for our culture in mediums of cartoons and video games and movies, etc., but then not want to totally use use us right in a way and right. have us compensated and truly be a part of that. And that's but like all, the
2: culture and not not the people.
1: Not the people. It's that's all yeah. we're asking for these days is let us truly have a seat at the table. Yeah. All right, that's it for episode 136 of the A Hard to Tell podcast. Special thank you to our guest, Jane McManus, who joined us on this. Please subscribe to us. Uh check out all the content that we are doing. Uh, you can stop to the Backpack Broadcasting YouTube channel. Uh subscribe to us on any uh platforms, audio where you check out uh the podcast. We will have more great podcasts coming up from you. Really in the next month, as we start to see some sports start to return. So there'll be Maybe. a lot of, it, it may be, who knows what can happen in the next month. Brian's right about that. A lot yeah. can change. We don't even know what can happen in the next day. I mean, I, mean,
2: I could talk about boxing and MMA. Like, yeah ain't going nowhere. Like, yeah. they set up in Vegas, you know what I'm saying? UFC's going to Abu Dhabi. So, so there's there's not going to Florida right the now. World, <laughs> as
1: we know, the world can look a lot differently real quick. Yeah, so that's it for episode 136 for Brian Fonseca. I'm Dexter Henry. Until next time, y'all. Peace.